First John chapter 4. God is love. And God loves you. But those statements have been said so many times in so many different ways that to many people, to say God is love or God loves you means nothing to them. They've heard it repeatedly and they don't sometimes want to even hear it again. Many of us are quick to jump to conclusions about the love of God based on our experiences, our feelings, our emotions, and we can be tempted to make statements like this, if I were a God of love, then I would fill in the blank. But Scripture is clear that we're not free to talk about God's love in that manner. We have the truth of God's Word, which we can this morning read together and seek out all the days of our life, which would teach us what is true love. Many people say if we just loved people, everything would be good, right? If we just loved, then we wouldn't have any problems in this world. People ask the question, what is true love? Is it emotions, feelings? Is it actions? What is it? This morning, we look to the Bible, Scripture, the truth of God's Word, so that we would learn and understand and know what is true love. Many say that they believe that God is love, and they believe the Word of God The questions for you to ponder this morning is, do you love God and do you love others? And how do others that look at your life know that you love God? The scriptural truth from 1 John 4 this morning is this, from eternity to eternity, God is love and has shown His great love by sending His Son to save His people from their sins. Look with me at verses 7 through 12. It says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. The Word of God. Again, Holy Spirit, we pray that You would work upon our hearts that you would use the reading and the preaching of the Word to teach us about your love and to show us and empower us how to love others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look to the Scripture in 1 John chapter 4 this morning, let us look at verses 7 and 8, that love is from God. This morning, one of the things I prayed for you and for myself before coming downstairs uh, in preparation for the service is that we would understand God's love based on Scripture and anything that we have in our minds of what culture or the world has taught us about love would be set to the side and that we would see that God is love and that how He has loved us And therefore, if you are a follower of Christ, to then respond in love. If you have not read 1 John chapter, or the book of 1 John, uh, 
John the Apostle is writing to a church. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to believers. And we come to the third time in this short letter in which he addresses the love of God. And here he makes the emphasis that if you are a follower of Christ, you are to love others, one another. And specifically, he's drawing attention to loving one another among the body of Christ, which for some of you, if you've been in church for a while, that can be a challenge Oh, I can love those people, but not that person. They stole my seat when I came in. That person took the last donut when I was going to grab that. That person said this about my life, and they don't know the truth. And I find it um, amazing that from the churches I've served in, these are common struggles and issues among the body of Christ. In that we have decided I'm not going to love that person because of that way. And I believe if we are reading what the Word of God teaches us and shows us who we are and God's great love for us, that would change how we love others. John, in this letter, uses the word agape, speaking of God's love in the original language. And in this word, it means God's love that's produced by the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer as seen through the work of Christ. Look at verse 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from who? God. And whoever loves has been born of who? God. And knows who? God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is what? Love. Why do we look at this text this morning? We've been spending the last two months looking at the attributes of God, His nature, who He is, and we draw our attention now to the love of God. One week after we looked at God being a just God, and we saw His justice and His wrath, and in that we also saw His love, and therefore today we draw our attention to the love of God. Some ways that we can define God's love as an attribute is this. God's love means that God, in all eternity, gives himself to his people. God's love is showing his glory and his goodness to sinners whom he calls to himself. God demonstrates selfless love for his adopted children. And the greatest display of his love is seen at the cross of Jesus Christ. So we need to look at God's love in light of all of His attributes. So we go back to the first week a couple months ago. We saw that God is infinite, that He has no bounds. You cannot measure Him or contain Him. Therefore, His, inf- his infinite nature affects all of His attributes. Therefore, God loves His people without any limits. God loves His people without any limitation at all. And then we saw that God is holy And that's a good thing in relation to who God is and His love because God is completely set apart from any sin. Therefore, His love or lack of love is not influenced by sinfulness. He is holy and His love is pure and righteous and good. We also saw that God is omnipotent, that He is all-powerful. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Because nothing can stay God's hand, nothing can stop Him from doing what He desires or is pleased to do, nothing can separate His people from the love of God. Look at chapter 8, verse 35. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. You make the list. Whatever it is that you're facing, trial, persecution, problems, trouble, sadness, uh, whatever it may be, Scripture is clear that you cannot be separated from the love of God if you are in Christ Jesus, who is Lord. And it's a wonderful truth to hold to as you walk through your days in the midst of trouble to be reminded of God's great love for you and that you can't be separated from it. And that's one thing that helps us be grounded in walking in holiness because as we just read in 1 John, we're to love others. The only way that we can love others is by knowing the love of God and to know that we can't be separated from God's love can continue to sustain us and empower us by the Holy Spirit to love others. So God is omnipotent and nothing can separate us from His love. We also saw that God is omniscient and it means that God is what? All Knowing. God knows everything. And so Him knowing in all of eternity of our sinfulness does not stop Him from loving His people. We also saw that God is omnipresent, that God is everywhere. He's not creation, but He is everywhere. We cannot run or hide from Him. As we looked at Jonah, even being in the uh, swallowed in a fish in the depths of the sea, that God was still present. And therefore, it's a wonderful thing to know that you cannot flee or run from the love of God. That it's present. We also saw that God is sovereign meaning he's in complete control of every single thing. God does as he pleases. Therefore, he loves whom he pleases and how he pleases to do so. And when we understand that attribute lined up with the love of God, we can understand that God, he does what he pleases. And therefore, when it says in Romans 9, 13, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated, we have nothing we can say back to him. We may not understand it all, But God's Word says that He loves as He pleases. We also saw a great wonderful truth that God is immutable, that He does not change. And I don't know about you, but the week we looked at that, all week long I was so thankful that our God does not ever change because that means that His love for us never changes. And if you are a follower of Christ, some of you today battle with the fact of I need to do something for God today so He loves me more. No! It's just as bad as those who think they can do something to try to gain God's love for beginning and to be saved. You cannot do anything to cause God to love you more or to love you less. God's love is constant. Praise God. It means there's no end to His love. 
Last week, we looked at God is just, his justice, that he always, always, always acts what is according to his, what is right and true. And we saw last week, as even we see again this week, that his justice is acted in the midst of love at the cross where Jesus Christ hung and died and bled for his people. One of the attributes we haven't really touched on yet is God is eternal. And it, God has no beginning he has no ending, and therefore God loves, and there is no beginning to that love or ending of his love. God has always been a loving God. And yet, we see things in this world and we challenge and say, how could God be a loving God if, and fill in the blanks. And we struggle with the truth of God's word, plainly, it's simply, that in all eternity, God is love, he does not change, his love never ends, and nothing can separate his people from his love. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 helps us understand about God's uh, love in all of eternity. In the letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the church there in Ephesus in verses 3 through 5, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Did you see that? Before Jesus said, let there be light, God loved His people before you were even formed. He loved you. It says that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And we'll look at adoption again in here in a moment. But to think of the fact of being someone without a heavenly father and then being saved and brought in and adopted as one of his children is a glorious truth of God's love for his people. Something that if you're a follower of Christ daily, you should remind yourself, God has adopted me. And he didn't have to because there was nothing in me that he would seek me out to make me his own. The great love of God. In Jeremiah 31, it speaks of God's love for the nation of Israel. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. That God's love is everlasting. God is love. And we must look to that truth to understand God and who He is. Well, look with me at verse 9 back in 1 John chapter 4. <clears throat> Not only love is from God and God is love, but the second point is this. God's great act of love is what we need to pay attention now and today and every day until we see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. Verse 9 teaches us of God's great and greatest act of love for his people, and that's the gift of giving his son, Jesus Christ. We were just singing the name of Jesus Christ. We were just praising Jesus for who he is and what he has done. And John writes here in verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. When John writes here, he's pointing to Jesus' first advent, the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ, who was born in the manger, born of a virgin, God, divinity, 
who added humanity to himself. In 47 days, we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. We actually celebrate it every single day of the year. It's important, though, that you would understand God's great love is seen in the birth of Christ. Not just at the cross, but that you would know and understand God loved you so much that He would send His only Son to add humanity to His divinity so that He could go to the cross. Because what happened in Jesus' lifetime before the cross is that Hebrews teaches us that He knows what we go through. He knows what we experience because He lived it Himself. And John says, The love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. If you go to Matthew chapter 1, in Matthew chapter 1, an angel comes to Joseph after he finds out that Mary, he's, who he's going to be married to, is pregnant. And it says this in verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Therefore, when we approach Christmas time, for many of us, the distraction is oh, what am I going to get them for a gift this year? They have everything. I don't know what to get. We get busy with all of the Christmas events and times and and, and I love that time, but it also can become such a great distraction that you find yourself on Christmas morning going, oh, oh, God, thank you for loving me by sending Jesus. Pray with me that as we approach that time, we would not be distracted by Christmas, but we would be attracted to Jesus Christ. Amen. It says in verse 9, God sent His only Son that God gave the greatest and His very best gift, Jesus Christ. And that gift is this, again, Jesus Christ was made manifest here, that Jesus was sent by God the Father, and we know as we studied through the Gospel of Luke over the last year and a half that Jesus was obedient to the Father in all things and going to the cross and dying in our place for our sins. Therefore, God could not have given any other greater gift than to give Jesus for you so that you could be set free of your sins. Turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 3 to a text which many of you know, memorized in verse 16. I want us to look at verses 16 through 18. John chapter 3. <clears throat> For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. For God not, did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 
Again, John 3.16, many people in this world just know it. They know the reference. They've seen it at the football games, basketball games, whatever it may be. Yeah, God loved and sent his son. And we stay there in verse 16, which is a wonderful, glorious truth, but you read the next two verses, and again, we can't get away from what we saw last week with God's justice. And so God has to punish sin because he's holy and he's just, but he gives the gift of his son Jesus so that his people could be set free and forgiven of sin. To have the chains of slavery to sin broken in our lives is a glorious gift through Jesus Christ. And Jesus was obedient. Because remember when Jesus was in the garden the night that he was arrested? What was Jesus asking of God the Father? Take this cup away, right? He's like, not my will, but yours be done. We know that uh, in Luke, it says, three times he prayed that prayer. The disciples heard him to the point that the blood vessels in his forehead are breaking under the skin and he's sweating out drops of blood that this uh, pressure was upon him. He knew what he was facing. Not just physical death on a cross, but wrath of God the Father for taking upon sin. But he was obedient. Jesus grew up as a child. After he was baptized, he went into the wilderness and Satan tempted him. In that 40 days and 40 nights, he never sinned once. Jesus, the night he was arrested, he went through a tri- trial after trial throughout the night that was illegal. They couldn't find him guilty of anything. They punched him in the face. They spit in his face. They repeatedly mocked him. He was taken, even though there was nothing found that he did wrong. And they took these whips and they whipped them across his bare back. They shredded his back. He bled profusely. The soldiers weaved together a thorn of crowns and they put it on his head and they took a stick and beat him over the head with it. And they put the staff in his hand and a robe and they mocked him. False witnesses were brought before him. Pilate tried to set him free. But it was the will of God to punish his son. And so Jesus Christ, carrying the cross to Calvary, couldn't even make it there. Another man had to carry the cross beam the rest of the way. And it was there that Jesus Christ had nails driven through his wrists, through his feet to the cross. And he hung there. And we think about the torment and the mocking and the physical pain. And it was nothing. It was nothing compared to the fact that God imputed to Jesus our sinfulness. God the Father punished the Son, as Isaiah 53 says. It pleased the Father to crush the Son. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We don't deserve it, church. There's nothing in us that God would turn turn his attention and say, oh, I, I love you because of that. Jesus bled and died on the cross. His blood was shed to cover over our sins, and he died there. He stopped breathing, blood stopped flowing, 
the brain stops functioning. Jesus physically died. And he was buried and placed in a tomb. And on the third day, God, the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, raised the Son from death to life. And that is why every day we say he is risen. And he is risen indeed. And we have life in Christ that we would walk in holiness. It's at the cross where we find mercy, and it's at the cross where we find the love of God, in which Ephesians 2 says in verse 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so God, His great act of love is to give His Son. But we read on in verse 10, also that God loved us first. The third point is that God loved us first. And I believe that this is something that sometimes we struggle with and somehow we have convinced ourselves that we loved God before He loved us. But Scripture says the complete opposite. Look at verse 10. In this is love. Again, John repeats himself. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son. It says, this is love. If you read down in verse 19, which we did not read earlier at the beginning of the service, it says, we love because He first loved us. And again, that God's love for us first is something that should overwhelm and flood our hearts today. To know that He loved us greatly before He even gave us life is something which is hard to even fathom. Because if you read Romans chapter 3 in one place, in verses 10 through 18, it tells us no one is righteous, no one does good, no one. We could read through the pages of Scripture for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And I believe, again, this is a part when we read that God loved us first, we must get this right. Because when I think of this, what's been helpful for me over the years is I think of it this way. If I walked outside the door today and I tripped and fall on the ground, I get up. And some people think that that is this picture of they get up and they, they turn from their sin, they trip, and they go, oh, I love God, and they're saved. But that's not what Scripture tells us. But again, if I'm walking down the street and I fall into a hole and I cannot get, it out, get out, and then Jesus comes along and puts his hand out for me, I then reach out and take his hand and pull myself out. And again, wrongly, then I believe well, yes, I, Jesus did something, but I then believed in him. I loved him. No, you did not love him first. Jesus loved you first by giving his life for you. So for me, the greatest picture of God's love and him loving me first is I'm walking. I fall off the cliff of that mountainside, and I'm dashed upon the rocks. I am no longer living. I am dead in my sins. I am dead completely, and it is God who comes and gives me life by the power of his Holy Spirit that I would see the cross, the mercy and grace of God, and say, Jesus, would you save me a sinner? God loved me first. I did not love him. 
And it says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. Again, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Because here's the problem. Any time that we begin to say that we're in control of salvation and God is not, we're making ourselves God and we're stealing all the glory from God. Because the Word of God says salvation belongs to God alone, not to us. Romans chapter 5 helps us in this, beginning in verse 6. It says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, we don't like verse 10. If you look back at verse 10, we do not want to admit that I was an enemy of God. We want to say, well, I was a sinner. But if we say that we're an enemy of God and we agree with Scripture, it says that we are children of wrath and that we are wicked, then we can understand the fullness of God's love that He would love me, an enemy who's wicked, just like when God looked down upon the earth in Genesis 6 and he said all that man did was wickedness and sinfulness. And what did he do in Genesis 6? He flooded the world. He saved Noah and his family and wiped everyone out. We saw this last week, God's justice and his wrath. And so when we read passages like Romans 5, we can understand we don't love God first. There's nothing in us that's lovely there's nothing in us that would move us to just go, oh, I love you today, God. It's a work of God and His salvation saving us from our sins. God's love and the cross where Jesus Christ bled and died means so much more. Another thing that Romans 5 helps us in this here also in 1 John 4.10 of God loving us and that some of us, again, apart from Christ, think that we can do something to be saved. And therefore, we try it. Some of you have done this before you came to Christ. You tried to live the moral life, right? Some of you crossed the T's, dotted the I's. You helped in town. You served these people. You baked cookies for those neighbors just because you thought it was a good thing to do. You helped that person cross the street. You gave to the mission in town, whatever it may be. And you thought that all those things made something in you where God would say, Oh, I'm going to save her. I'm going to save him. No, your works, if you're here without faith in Christ, you cannot do anything for salvation other than faith alone in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. He does all the work and his people receive all the benefit of his love. It says there in verse 10, if you go back to 1 John 4, 
He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Church, don't be afraid of these big words that you come across at different times. You might say, well, what's that justification and sanctification and glorification? And what's propitiation? You should study. Be a student of the Word of God. If you don't know how to understand, okay, well, how, Pastor, how do I get some help here or understand this? You must understand that when this word propitiation is used, it's a word that helps us understand God's sacrifice. If you go all the way back to Leviticus in the Old Testament, that there had to be a sacrifice. God said to, the, uh, to Moses, to the nation of Israel, for you to be forgiven of your sins, there must be a blood sacrifice. And so every single year, the high priest would have from the nation of Israel two goats that were brought to him. And, uh, and aside from taking a bull in and sacrificing it for himself and his sons, he would then symbolically place his hands upon the goats and he would place symbolically the sins of the nation of Israel upon the goats and one of the goats whatever the lot was cast on would be slaughtered and the blood would be taken to the mercy seat so that God would pass over the sins of the nation of Israel for a year and the other goat that had the sins symbolically placed upon would be taken out into the wilderness and set free in this wonderful picture of God passing over and forgetting over forgetting our sins. So propitiation is a picture of what Jesus Christ did at the cross. In just a few moments, we're going to take a piece of bread and cup together, and it is a symbol of what exactly this verse 10 says. He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. There is a mercy seat that's on top of this, um, the, the Ark of the Covenant, and the blood would be sprinkled there so that then God would pass over the sins for another year. But Jesus became the propitiation. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Jesus became the sacrifice and the only sacrifice that could be offered so that we could be forgiven in receiving the love of God. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24 through 26, it says this, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus did not walk into the temple behind this curtain that was made by the people of God and then sacrifice himself. When he died on the cross in our place for our sins and his blood was shed, he enters heaven before God Almighty and God the Father sees God the Son and the sacrifice and his wrath is appeased. God's justice is served because the Son died for you. He took the wrath meant for you because you sinned against God. And there is no longer any need for any more sacrifices. As we 
Read in Acts 1 when Jesus ascended into heaven. He ascended to heaven where he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Right now he's ruling and reigning right at this moment. Do you know that Jesus Christ loves you, his people, so much that he intercedes for you now to think that our Savior prays for us? That we would walk in holiness, that we would walk in righteousness, that we would walk in truth, that he empowers us the Holy Spirit of God, to walk and live in that way today, we then can do, as we read in 1 John 4, love other people. Because it's not according to our power, but it's according to the power of God working in us. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Therefore, when a person is baptized, this wonderful picture of going under the water, the old self dying with Christ, coming up out of the water, a picture of being raised to new life, being made a new creation in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you turn to 1 John chapter 3, just turn over a page there. To be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, faith alone in Christ. At the moment of salvation, we're justified. Meaning, as we saw last week, standing before God the Father in the sense that He sees us and He sees the righteousness of Christ and He says, You're not guilty. Because the blood of Christ covers over our sins. But another glorious thing is he adopts us. He makes you his own. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Church, there is a day coming in which a glorious moment called glorification, in which the believer, the person in Christ, there's no more struggle or battle with sin anymore. And you have a new raised body, a glorified body. No more sin, no more death, no more sickness. Come Jesus now. Because it's the thing that we will have glorified bodies, but the greatest thing is we will see Jesus face to face. So, how do we respond? last two verses is the response. Fourth point, we should act in love. Knowing how much God loves us, when He saves us, we then should live our life loving other people. God calls and commands, as we see here, a response by you if you are a follower of Christ to love God and to love other people. 
The greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the great commission that you're commanded as a Christian to go and love others by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would see Jesus and believe. It says in verse 11 here, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love who? One another. Again, he's writing to the church about them loving one another. That doesn't mean that you don't love people outside of the church, but it's important that the body of Christ is to be an example of the love of Christ. So look across the room right now. Some of the people you don't even know in here, maybe you should take a step and get to know them and to show the love of Christ. And we do that in many ways. We're commanded, we're given instruction in the Word of God on how the church is to love God and to love one another. And for some of you, you find this is a great challenge today because there's someone in the body of Christ, either in this church or a church you've been a part of, that you do not want to love. And I pray that the Holy Spirit works upon your heart this morning and puts that person ever before your face every single day that he would move you to the point. <laughs> I didn't mean that for a joke, but uh, I guess so. Um, that you would love him. I think we chuckle because we know it's true. And some of us need to forgive some true brothers and sisters in Christ because you and I still battle with sin and we still struggle with hurting and wronging one another, but we should act in love. Verse 12 says, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. It says that God has not been seen the full revelation of his divinity has not been seen, but we will see him one day in all of his glory and splendor. If we are to love others, we, underst we must understand that God's going to continue to work in us. It's called sanctification. Your homework is to read John 15 this week. It says to abide in Christ and Christ to abide in us. And if Christ abides in us and we abide in Christ, then there's fruitfulness from our life and fruit, the love of Christ. Loving one another. Therefore, read John chapter 15 and abide in Christ and pray that God would continue to sanctify you and that His love would be perfected in you. I want to look at one last passage in Ephesians chapter 3. This is the prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed for the church regarding the love of God. It's a prayer that we should pray for each of us this morning. It says in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How does the love of God strike you this morning? Has it been a great reminder that God loves you greatly, that He loves you first, that His love is never ending, His love never changes, and that He has forgiven you of your sins if you are in Christ? If you're not in Christ, if you have come into this place today and you've been living in darkness, and God's calling you out of darkness into the light of Christ. I could tell you some words to say, but words don't save you. It's the Holy Spirit 
open your eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ and you believing that Jesus Christ's work on the cross was sufficient for you, that his work is done and that forgiveness is found in his love by him dying for you in your place. This morning, confess your sins to the Lord. Admit that you need his love and you need his salvation and God does all the saving work. As the worship team comes forward, we're going to take a moment to prepare to take a piece of bread and a cup together and reflect on the sacrifice that Christ gave of himself for us. And if you're not a follower of Christ and the Lord is working right now, even as we have been looking at God's word and he's saving you, then praise the Lord. And if you're not saved, I pray that you would see the light of Christ through the work of the Spirit and be saved. Would you pray with me? Father, it is so hard to even know how to express our thankfulness to you at this moment. That you love us so much. You've loved us so deeply, so greatly, that you've loved us before we were ever born, that a couple thousand years ago that you would give your gift of your son Jesus for us then, and that you would be working that gift out in our lives now is something that is hard to fathom. We desire to know you more, to understand your love greater, to know how to be obedient and to love you and to love others. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do that in us, that the believers would love one another with the love of Christ, to serve one another as you have served us, to give to one another as you have given us, to pray for one another as you pray for us. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for the gift that you've given of your life for us. We bless your name, Jesus. Amen.